0: Human not free market propaganda
1: because they own my special that fund their campaign That's why you hear that same old things they claim, but never came. Welcome to the project censored show on Pacifica Radio I'm your host Mickey Huff with co-host Eleanor Goldfield. To start out the program today I'll share an interview I did recently with author Dr. Aaron Good. We talk about his latest book out on Skyhorse American Exception: Empire in the Deep State. We discussed post-World War II history and the Cold War and its significance for what's happening around the world today, especially regarding NATO, Russia, and Ukraine. Later in the program, we'll share an interview Eleanor Goldfield did with activist Chris Garafa. They discussed the importance and state of net neutrality. Coming up on The Project Censored Show, Aaron Good and Chris Garafa. Stay tuned for another episode of The Project Censored Show. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we welcome back Dr. Aaron Good. He's a political scientist and historian. His doctoral dissertation was published in June by Skyhorse under the title American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. He is currently the host of the American Exception podcast and can be supported via Patreon. And today on the program, we're here to talk about Aaron's book and the basic premise here, starting with a question. How can we understand the uncanny continuity of U.S. foreign policy, the lawlessness of elites and the extreme concentration of wealth and power? American Exception answers these questions to explain the breakdown of U.S. democracy using a deep politics approach, shedding light on matters that are typically suppressed in so-called mainstream discourse. Aaron Good, welcome back to the Project Censored show.
0: Hey, it's great to be here, Mickey.
1: This book, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, it's a revised version of your dissertation. People from Oliver Stone and Peter Dale Scott to Peter Kuznick have praised the book. Our colleague here, a former director of Project Censored, Peter Phillips, wrote a foreword to this book. It's really a great combination of political science, political economy, but also, it ends up being a de facto meta-analysis of media and censorship because if folks pick up your book and they start leafing through it, there's a lot of things that they're not going to really understand right out of the gate because they don't really speak the language. They don't have the historical context to understand some of the arguments you make and about what you call a tripartite state. So Aaron, can you just talk a little bit about the background of this and you know, what you're trying to do in American Exception?
0: Well, I grew up, like probably a lot of your listeners, as a left liberal Democrat in a typical left liberal Democratic household. My mom was a congressman's staff worker As when I was a kid. I worked on campaigns when I was a little kid. I was always thinking that the, the Republicans like Reagan and Bush were mean to poor people and, and so on, just like a good Democrat at the time. And when the Iraq war happened, it was just shortly after I graduated, right after I graduated from college, really a couple of years. I had a political science degree and I was on the political left and I thought that the Iraq war was blatantly criminal. So I worked for the campaign, the Kerry campaign on a really low level as a DNC sort of canvasser basically during the John Kerry presidential campaign of 2004. 2008, I worked for Obama as a field organizer And I thought that if elected, he would prosecute the crimes of his predecessor because he's in the other party. He has every reason to want to hand serious political defeats to his adversaries in the other party. So I thought. And they had broken laws. I mean, if you can if your enemies are like committing crimes that you could send them to jail for, that would be great in theory, right? I mean, pretty straightforward. And then Obama instead bailed out the bankers. He didn't do anything about torture. He didn't prosecute anybody for the Iraq war. He helped to overthrow the government of Honduras. He destroyed the most prosperous country in Africa, Libya. And so I went from being, you know, attending Obama's inauguration and thinking that I would perhaps work in politics, potentially in the federal government even, and I abandoned that. And eventually I applied for grad school, not that long afterwards. And I wanted to write a radical analysis on why the U.S. foreign policy doesn't change, as, I, as you mentioned, which is from the sort of summary of the book or synopsis. And that led me to spend really about 10 years or more doing a lot of research so reading a lot and then at night for fun quote unquote like i would listen to all these podcasts so that's a good place to hear about some subversive and censored issues like the kennedy assassination and other things that you can study to really get a window into the american empire and part of what this book does is try to offer a new frame of analysis it's not totally new of course i cite a whole lot of other people and try to build on other people's work. But the main thing is that we do not have the theoretical framework to understand just what an empire is, what the United States is, how to talk about state criminality and covert operations that are plausibly deniable. So we don't even know what the government's policies are. And we don't think of the U.S. as not the history of like a, a country and the history of freedom on the march, but really as the history of world history's most powerful, richest, and most deadly empire, I would say. And I can base that in part on something that is included in Peter Phillips' book, our good friend. In, uh, and he wrote about how 9 million people a year die from starvation and malnutrition, and that this could be eliminated with a small tax on, say, billionaires or a fraction of the Pentagon budget. But we know that the U.S. Isn't, doesn't do that. Instead, what the U.S. does is they attack every country where the government tries to respond to these issues like venezuela why is venezuela in the crosshairs of the u.s empire because they spend oil money on helping poor people to be able to survive in their own country that's the gist of why they hate bolivia you know why do they hate china why do they hate libya so much Gaddafi raised living standards by using oil wealth china has a socialist economy and you know they're integrated into a capitalist system uh, but they have a socialist ruling class that controls the commanding heights of the oil industry and finance. And they just crack down on healthcare profiteers and education profiteers and housing profiteers. So why does America do this? Why does America really almost always stick up for the most exploitative forces in the world? And it's to maintain its empire and domination over the global international system.
1: You know, political scientist Michael Parenti, who was long using the term empire to describe the United States, also noted that somewhere as we got into the 21st century, the term started to be more embraced by elites, but it was a benevolent empire, right? It had a qualifier. It was, the, it was a good thing, right? American exceptionalism is fueling this empire, so it, it must be a good thing. And of course, your title is American exception, <laughs> And you then write about what you call a tripartite state, talking about hegemony and empire. Could you describe what that analysis is? Tripartite state.
0: This is a way of building on other critics in the past who have said that there is more to the American system of governance than the high school civics class version that we're taught about with the three branches of the government and the legislature and the bill on Capitol Hill and all that. And that there is the ability to intervene in a top down way in politics. And to determine outcomes and to lie about it and this comes from the national security state and so some people put forward the idea of a dual state that there is the public state the the democracy such as it is and then there is a top-down authoritarian security state i looked at that even more and looked started to look at the actual origins of the national security state and the u.s empire and I read a lot of Peter Dale Scott's work, your good friend, a brilliant guy out there in Berkeley. He's in his 90s now and is still working on two final books that he's putting out. Really just an inspirational character and a a brilliant guy that we're not going to see his like again, unfortunately. And he wrote about a deep political system, about how going back in history, you had in U.S. history, you had this system where you had the democratic governance and the rule of law, such as it was in elections and so on. But you also had the mafia and the political machines and kind of institutionalized corruptions that were a part of the system of governance. It's not that you have this good system where things work like they're supposed to, and then out there separately, there's this corruption. It's that it's integrated into the system of governance. And that's before World War II. Now, after World War II, when the U.S. pursues global empire, those kinds of arrangements, which were sort of spread across the U.S. and decentralized, they really get Centralized, one area where they do is in the central intelligence agencies. So it's created as a security agency, but really it's bringing in these deep political actors like the mafia and like corporate wealth and the connections between corporate wealth and and the mafia and using them to uh, influence politics around the world. And so I make the argument that this really leads to a transformation of the United States regime. You still have elected officials and so on, and you have this security state, the FBI, the CIA, but you also have this deep political power and all these institutions that really allow for top-down rule and a nominal democracy. And so part of the state really could be argued to be the national security state. In theory, the national security state could be the guardian of the public state, and it could protect the public state from nefarious deep political actors, corrupt individuals. Alternatively, if the security state is created by oligarchic power, you know, very rich and powerful people, and it serves their interests by overthrowing governments around the world that want to nationalize corporate holdings, well, in that case, the security state is the servant of deep political power. And I argue that the deep political power, power of corporate oligarchy in the United States, is institutionalized to the point that you have to think of it as essentially a deep state, a system of top-down governance in a nominal democracy. And that's where I thought my framework was useful and that it helped to explain things that conventional political science can't explain.
1: And you do, and you break it down really expertly and in detail in your book, American Exception. Aaron Good, I know some folks listening to the program now have heard the term deep politics, deep state. Perhaps they associate it with Peter Dale Scott and David Talbot and others as I believe they ought to. But also people like Donald Trump have weaponized that terminology. The system is rigged, stop the steal. There's a lot of implication behind that that there's more than meets the eye and the system is corrupt. Of course, Trump poses himself as the antidote or the solution to it, which is absurd. But what are your comments on that? And how do you navigate through that noise to get to the analysis? In other words, are people like Trump part correct, just in the wrong way?
0: It's interesting to try to unpack what Trump is arguing and what he says. But there's really a long tradition in the U.S. of people who are taking a kind of conspiracist mindset but not looking at the root of the problem. So Trump can say, hey, the system is rigged. And a lot of people would say, yeah, the system is rigged. And he says, it's a deep state and it has power over us. It resonates with people because most people do understand that policies don't change and elected presidents can't do much to improve people's conditions. They do recognize that something has gone very wrong with American democracy. But Trump, because it's bad analysis, he doesn't put corporate power at the center of it. It's really the conspiratorial view of history. I'm interested in analyzing conspiracy and clandestine crime as a part of our system of governance, not that the conspiracy is everything. This is where right-wing conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones, they want to posit some sort of group of villains in charge of things rather than placing it in the context of a political economic system and, in a, and a certain political economic elite that we could call oligarchs, really, or an oligarchy. Is that really, you could say the deep state is oligarchy if you wanted to. It's it's a, it's almost a synecdoche to say it like that or to say it's capitalism or to say it is empire. Those are all good shorthand for really what the deep state is. But Trump has poisoned the well in a way. Some people think that this is part of some like nefarious plot. I think it's just sort of convenient in a way for them this way, but who knows? The, the issue is he has delegitimized a left-wing critique that gets to the heart of our problem. And so this is very mischievous of Trump to do this because we really do need to understand that ours is not a democratic regime and we need to make it more democratic by going right at undemocratic forces. But it's not just bureaucrats. It's not a Jewish conspiracy that we're talking about. It's not a liberal democratic pedophile cabal that's really in charge of everything. It's, it's capitalism and an oligarchy of enormous wealth and uh, the way that it exercises its dominance over society and uh, pretty much overrides democracy again and again and the rule of law.
1: I'd like to remind listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue our conversation with political scientist Dr. Aaron Good after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we welcome back Aaron Good, political scientist and historian to his Ph.D. at Temple University, Recent book out on Skyhorse is called American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. He's currently the host of the American Exception podcast. Aaron Good, before the break, you were breaking down sort of the analysis you have of the tripartite state in American Exception. We talked a little bit about how the, these phrases and terms have been weaponized. Let's talk a little post-World War II history to give more context for your analysis. You talk about the Council on Foreign Relations Peace Studies Project. You talk a lot about the Cold War and CIA machinations. Can you talk a little bit about some of that history just to give people a backdrop and a context so that when you're talking in the present, people start to see that you're talking about a 75-year analysis here. You're, You're talking about a long historical analysis. You're not just armchair quarterbacking what happened in an election.
0: As you say, it's two books. The first half of the book is social science, theory, and understanding empire, hegemony, the state, definitions of the state, state criminality, and so on, and how that is is brought into our system of governance. But the second half is a tracing of the evolution of the American deep state with a focus on the post-World War II era. I've come to see these things more as going back even further and being really all part of the same story of the rise of the quote-unquote West, you know, as the global colonizing power. And we get to the point of the 20th century, and you have two world wars that are fought in large part between colonial powers. It was to determine who was really going to have control over this international system, this international economic system. And at the end of this, the U.S. wins and is in a position of great power. And it folds in the anti-communist international. People forget that that's really what the Axis was called, but that's what it was. And it folds both of the major powers on the on either side of the Eurasian landmass into its own system as satellites. So Japan and, and Germany are made into these sort of powerhouse satellites of the U.S. And the U.S. slowly pursues decolonization. But what this is really is, is neocolonialism. They want to basically make a transition from former colonial management to the U.S. as the manager of a neocolonial system in Europe and all of their investments overseas and so on, folded into this system over which America exercises hegemony. And this was planned by people starting in the middle of World War II, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is Wall Street money, Standard Oil, especially Rockefellers, all of their financial and oil interests and so on. They are sort of a think tank, a brain trust for corporate America, and they are given State Department sanction to come up with a study that will plan what America should do to enter World War II and then construct the post-war world order. And they follow that to a T. And one of the main people in charge of planning this was Alan Dulles. He was vice president of the council at that point. And he had previously been a State Department employee, but also worked for Sullivan and Cromwell at the same time, was essentially a standard oil lawyer over in East Asia and other places where he was involved with creating a a company in in New Guinea that discovered an enormous gold mine and uh, kept it secret for like 40 years in Indonesia. I mean, really just a guy who was a leg man for Wall Street. And that's who was those types of people were who planned the American empire. And they knew that they were going to need some sort of agency to go out and do the things that needed to be done to maintain a colonial empire, but secretly this time. And so people like Alan Dulles, And the first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal and Ferdinand Eberstadt, you know, both of those guys were at Reed, this investment bank. They wanted to create a CIA and they give it operational powers to carry out clandestine operations with plausible deniability so the U.S. can intervene in countries and say, we're not doing that. So they can have their democratic halo of freedom while they still act as uh, colonialist gangsters. But it's neocolonialism. They're not as open about it. They planned it this way. And it's been very successful for a long time. Up until at present, I think we see it unraveling. But this was so premeditated as I look back on it. It's never explained to us this way in school. We just are not taught that America is an empire. How did this empire come about? Who does it benefit? Who planned it? Why Why does it work this way? This is what I have tried to explain as best I could.
1: Well, Aaron Good, if you go back to the late 19th century, Spanish-American War, all of the Latin American Wars, um, Smedley Butler came out and told us the Marine, he said he was a gangster for Wall Street for 33 years. That's what those wars were all about. Uh, they were, of course, sold as liberation, the really racist wars of, of imperialism. But World War I and two really showed the vast destructive power of industrial warfare. And so the public doesn't really have the palate for sustained mass conflict that way. And in many ways, taking this underground or covertly was the way in which to manage empire. Eddie Bernays said that it's important to propagandize the public, but they can't know that it's happening. It's important for the public to participate in empire, but they may not be enthusiasts of every war. So that's a kind of an ongoing challenge we have. We could talk about James Buchanan, Milton Friedman. We could talk about the so-called think tanks of the 70s, the Nixon administration, which really trying to reclaim what they felt that the, the right felt, what they were losing in the public sphere, in the universities, etc. But let's, let's try to bring it more closely to the present to talk about something that's happening now. There seems to be a lot of support in the U.S., bipartisan support for intervention in Ukraine. Can you talk about this kind of analysis that you have in this book and how it relates to that current crisis of the illegal war that Russia is waging?
0: My book, basically, the historical part of it that traces things chronologically stops with Ronald Reagan, but I already have mapped out in my mind a sequel to it that I want to call American Exception 2, McJihad, and the Long Cold War, and that would get into the 90s. And when you look at what happened after the fall of the Soviet Union, it's just the continuation of the Cold War by other means. And it should make you think of like, well, what was the Cold War really about? Was it really ever about communism or was it about global empire? Which I think it was obviously about global empire because after the Cold War ends, the U.S. says, oh, well, not going to expand NATO. But they do. They start to encroach further and further closer to Russia. They also wage warfare on Russia in the form of shock therapy, economic you know, plunder, really, and it devastates Russia, and it enriches a number of people in the United States and a class of oligarchs in Russia that Putin has only halfway sort of dialed back. Um, and the US also used all of these people that they had been using in Afghanistan, these jihadi networks to uh, engage in covert operations in places like Bosnia, Kosovo, the British intelligence tried to use al-Qaeda to assassinate Gaddafi. Chechnya, the U.S. had to have been involved in supporting those separatist militants in Russia. This just goes on and on. And then, strangely, we have a couple of attacks before 9-11, the embassy bombings and the um, attack on the USS Cole. And then you have 9-11. Okay, well, these guys are our enemies. Now we go and attack these other countries. But it's the same sort of conflict. It's attempting to control Eurasia, East Europe, Central Asia, The Middle East, you know, they go and try to turn Iraq into a US client state. They try to occupy Afghanistan, they fail. The neocons had this crazy agenda, and it mostly fails. And then Obama revives it with the Arab Spring Wars, which the Arab Spring looks to me a lot like a color revolution at this point in time. But set that aside, they fought two wars that seem totally illegitimate now, Libya and Syria. They won, quote unquote, in Libya. And now that country is a basket case, and it's a real tragedy. Syria, People don't know this, but the U.S. is still occupying part of Syria. They invaded illegally are occupying a part of it and stealing oil from the country outright. And in the same time, it was Russia who supported the Syrian government and kept them from being overrun by the American dirty war against the country. And the U.S. stages this coup in Ukraine in 2014, which to me is one of the most obvious covert operations of all time. You had the secretary of state passing out cookies to the anti-government protesters you had her on video talking about the $5 billion they've spent, quote unquote, like helping Ukrainian civil society and moving them toward democracy, whatever that's supposed to mean. And then you had the phone call of her talking about who they wanted to replace. And they're talking about, oh, yeah, this guy, he's our guy. And then later, when they forced the, pro- the president to step down after some you know, sniper attacks and other things, which is a CIA calling card, that ends up being the person that is installed as the leader. So this is a U.S. project to threaten Russia. I think Khrushchev put those missiles in Cuba literally to stop a U.S. invasion and maybe kind of put the U.S. under a little bit of pressure. Okay, but what the U.S. did in Ukraine is I think even more dangerous than that because it wasn't a deterrent. I think it was more of a threat. Like they really wanted to put a satellite and a military outpost right on Russia's doorstep and cut off their access to the Black Sea and the Mediterranean so they couldn't do things like support the military operation in Syria This is all part of the U.S. war against the world, really, and people need to recognize it as as such.
1: Which is difficult to do when we're inundated with round-the-clock propaganda. Censorship runs rampant, particularly around this issue. Uh, There's extraordinary political pressure in the U.S. that if anybody raises questions or even talks about serious historical problems of war— As an existential crisis in in a nuclear age, which we're still in, the doomsday clock is closer than ever, according to scientists worrying about nuclear annihilation, as Peter Kuznick and Dan Ellsberg say. So what about that element of it, Aaron Good, in terms of the propaganda, the censorship, lack of having a climate for discussion and debate about sending tens upon tens of billions of dollars in weapons Again, this says nothing about Putin. I'm not saying anything in support of Russia's invasion of Ukraine or bombing, illegal bombing of Ukraine or what's happening with that regard. But would you say this turns into a NATO proxy war?
0: It's absolutely a proxy war, and Russia perceived it as such right away. That's why Russia immediately when the coup happened, they moved to allow for Crimea to secede because the Crimean people did want that. And they'd asked for that before the coup, the Maidan coup. The Russians recognized this right away, what it was. And this has, as far as U.S. foreign policy goes, Americans don't know very much about Ukraine. They didn't before. They don't care very much. It's just been a massive propaganda campaign because it's deemed really crucial for America's plans for global hegemony. Brzezinski, you know, the guru of geopolitics of the American establishment, he wrote all about this in the late 90s about how important Ukraine was. We have all these statements from people like Burns, the current director of the CIA, or Mearsheimer's analysis going way back. This is just all very straightforward. And so Russia illegally invaded Ukraine in 2022. The United States illegally overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014. That's also a violation of the UN Charter. I would say it's very easy to understand that the what happened in 2022 is a consequence of what happened in 2014, and it's a real disaster. Now, what we're getting... Uh, from the press all the time is more censorship and propaganda than we've seen you if you go on twitter some guy who's uh, the founder of the georgian legion and he's a hitler admirer anything you put on there these people come and spam you with this this is like a a, a a coordinated campaign so that's something unusual is in america like overt propaganda campaigns from the state and they censor people like scott ritter who is a UN weapons inspector and has a lot of military experience. He had a different view of the deaths in Buka, and was putting that out on Twitter and they just kicked him off. So whether he's right or wrong, I mean, this is just total violation of of free speech and it's for a war that the U.S. is not like directly involved in. Supposedly this is a war between two other parties. So what could possibly explain the, unprecedented censorship regime and propaganda campaigns that we're seeing around this war. I mean, if people just stop and think about it, it makes you have to reconsider the validity of the Russian case in this war. Not that I condone an illegal invasion, but you need to understand why it happened, why they deemed it essential to their national security, because it's not like the eastern Ukraine is sitting on trillions of dollars worth of oil or something. So why would Russia take all these economic hits just to fight this war? You need to understand why.
1: So, Aaron Good, we're about out of time for this segment, but I wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can find your podcast.
0: American Exception, and you can find that podcast. And we're up, we're getting close to 100 episodes now. And uh, we cover things that the mass media won't cover. And even some of the other big podcasts won't cover. I have more on Ukraine than some of these other lefty podcasts. So we've had Peter Kuznick, Dan Ellsberg, Oliver Stone, Many, many great guests, and if you're interested in The Dark Side of the U.S. Empire, there's a lot there, and the book, you can buy anywhere, so if you have any interest in having a source to look these up and checking out the bibliography, there's a ton of information in the book as well, so and the audiobook version is actually pretty good, too, if you like that. We're just going to keep putting out whatever we can to illuminate the dark side of the U.S. Empire.
1: Aaron Good has been our guest today in this segment of the Project Censored Show, author Most recently of American Exception, Empire in the Deep State. You can also find the podcast American Exception online. Aaron Good, thanks so much for joining us today on the Project Censored show.
0: Thanks, Mickey. Always a pleasure.
1: And that was my conversation with author Aaron Good about his book, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State. Coming up next, Eleanor Goldfield talks with Chris Garaffa about net neutrality. Stay tuned.
2: Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us. The Project Censored radio show. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, your host for this segment. And we are very glad right now to be joined by Chris Garaffa who is a technologist and co-host of the weekly podcast Covert Action Bulletin. Chris, thanks so much for joining us.
3: It's great to be
2: back on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's go back to go forward. Can you give listeners a brief rundown of what net neutrality is and why it matters? Net neutrality
3: is a really simple idea, and it should not be controversial. It just says that all internet traffic should be treated the same, meaning that you can't prioritize access to one site over another. This has become particularly interesting when we talk about streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and others, because media conglomerates also own a number of these services like Hulu, but then there's independent services like Netflix. And so the media companies try to say, Well, Netflix is very expensive for us because video uses a lot of bandwidth. What if we could charge you more to have a faster Netflix connection, but your Hulu connection, for example, would still be the same? And opposing that is the basis of net neutrality. There's a lot of other parts to it, too. What if Comcast could just block you from getting to Netflix unless you paid more to them for a special Netflix package? Think back to cable TV, where you had to buy all of the channels that you wanted to watch outside of the basic 13 or so back in the day, when you had to actually, you know, go and and buy the package that had ABC Family and Disney Plus, except the cable companies, there was reason for them to do that. Not great reason, but there was some, some technical reason for them to do that. Whereas with the internet providers... AT&T, Verizon and others, there isn't really a good technical reason for them. It's all about money. Imagine too if you had to buy a news subscription for your internet access. So you could only get to whatever websites Comcast said that you could get to for news and you had to pay extra for independent media, for an unlimited package. It sounds a little far-fetched, but it's something that is a very real possibility without net neutrality.
2: There's been so much going on, not least of all the threat of a nuclear holocaust, so people would be forgiven for not following FCC nomination news, but there's been a bit of a hiccup here. So Gigi Sohn who was a lawyer and telecom regulator, veteran, who actually advised Tom Wheeler during the Obama administration when he was pushed to defend net neutrality. And I say pushed because I was part of the protests to push him to defend net neutrality. He was not mm-hmm. on our side by default. So Gigi has a long history of working in these circles, and it seems that she's liked or was liked at one point by Democrats and Republicans, which should suggest that she'd be a shoe in so to speak. And yet it's been over a year since she was nominated by the Biden administration, and she has yet to be confirmed. And as far as I understand it, she has said that she would go back. Now Trump got rid of the net neutrality decision, and she has said that she would uphold net neutrality and she would reinstate it. So what's going on? What's the holdup here?
3: It has been just over a year now. It was very late October 2021 when Gigi Sohn was nominated by Biden. She had hearings in early December of 2021 uh, in front of the Senate Commerce Committee, and it's just been stalled. The entire nomination has been stalled. So the way the FCC works is that there are five commissioners. There is currently an empty seat. There are two Democrats, two Republicans, and this is an empty seat. And that's kind of The agreement that traditionally had been in place, that there were two Republicans, two Democrats, and then the party in power in Congress and or the White House got to nominate someone who was a little bit of a moderate into that position. Now, Gigi Sohn, from what I see, is not really a moderate when it comes to these issues. She comes from public knowledge. She comes from the Media Access Project and others, which are, are very impressive organizations. And I would look forward to her being that fifth commissioner on the FCC. But of course, the Senate Commerce committee does not want to do that we are speaking on the day after the midterm elections in the US and so I don't want to predict what's going to happen in terms of the Congress and where it goes but I think that there could be significant pressure on a new Congress either way no matter which way it turns out because like you said you know we had to pressure Obama to get net neutrality we had to put that pressure on he was not a fan of it until he realized that there was a significant movement. So we're going to have to do the same for those on the the Senate Commerce Committee for those in the Senate and the House in general in order to just get a hearing to move forward on the nomination of Gigi Sohn. I think that that's something that's going to have to happen once the new Congress comes into power in January no matter who is, you know, technically in control and it's going to be close either way.
2: Do you think that she could have her nomination Revoked, and then they would try to put someone in who has not said outright that they're a fan of net neutrality?
3: I think it's certainly possible. I think we have seen already, particularly the Republicans in Congress, are trying to block pretty much anything that the Biden administration, even the most modest proposals of the Biden administration, are getting blocked. So I think that if there is Republican control of this committee, then I think it's it's less likely that a, a smooth confirmation goes through. But again, I think either way, it's a matter of public pressure in order to get that confirmation.
2: I do want to ask a kind of devil's advocate question here, because I do remember during the net neutrality protests years ago, there were a lot of people that were saying, well, net neutrality is really not even enough. It's part of an old legislative package that didn't know the internet existed. So it's really not even going far enough. So what would you say to that? Are we already too far in a world that is too unlike the one where this Title II was originally thought up?
3: Well, I think... That's a correct position, but it doesn't cover the entire situation. We still need net neutrality. We still need that as just a basic part of our communications infrastructure, even though that infrastructure is owned by private corporations. I mean, particularly because it's owned by private corporations. It's still something we need. But there is so much more to the question that, and I'm glad you asked this, because there is much more. Millions of Americans still don't have broadband access at home. So if you can't get on the internet fast enough then what does it matter if you can watch Netflix or not or access a news website or a social media page you know if you can't get online then <laughs> none of that matters so right now there is a bill called the Net Neutrality and Broadband Justice Act that has been introduced it would amend the Communications Act of 1934 to make internet access fall under Title II as a telecommunication service, that would be net neutrality. And the FCC could not undo that. That would actually codify net neutrality into law. Now, this bill has uh, 28 or so co-sponsors, but it hasn't moved. It has not gone anywhere. It was introduced by Senator Markey, but it's just sitting there right now in the Senate. It's been introduced. It's gone absolutely nowhere. So that needs to be addressed, first of all. But past that, we had in the infrastructure bill, the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that was passed and signed by Joe Biden, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Net neutrality was not directly part of that, but they did include money for encouraging broadband extensions to rural America where you don't have broadband currently. But that involves giving the ISPs billions and billions of dollars to basically do that work. But it doesn't require anything of them other than providing what I consider to be low-speed internet access. It's actually not fast enough. So that's in there. One thing that did come out of the Infrastructure Act was actually something related to net neutrality, which is municipal broadband networks. And municipal broadband networks would basically mean that your town, your city, your neighborhood, however you look at it, controls The broadband that you have controls the internet access and can set prices managed as a public utility. That's what we need more of. We need to take what Comcast and AT&T and Verizon have done in large part with our tax money and through the hard work of the people who live in our cities and our neighborhoods And say, this is actually ours. We fund this. We give you so much money every year in terms of tax breaks, in terms of incentives to do the bare minimum of providing internet infrastructure. We should actually control that infrastructure. We should decide where does it go? Who needs it? Let's determine who needs access to this and prioritize getting them access first before doing some other service or upgrade. For people who already have it, make sure that it's a right. The UN says internet access is a right for everyone, and in fact, that's been extended to be broadband internet access, whether through satellite, cable, DSL, what you know, whatever it is. And that that isn't even a reality in the richest country in the world right now.
2: It's pretty remarkable the list of basic rights that are not available to people in the richest country in the world. So I want to ask you, particularly with the municipal broadband question, but also in terms of the larger net neutrality question, obviously on Project Censored, we talk a lot about censorship and the ability for the internet, as I understand it, was initially supposed to be a place where people could share pretty much whatever they wanted. Not that it's illegal under the First Amendment, but that it is a free speech place. It is a place where people can share ideas and nothing is supposed to be better than anything else at the outset. And yet, of course, the reality that we live in now is completely not like that, that concept. And so I'm curious, would net neutrality have any effect or would municipal broadband have any effect on censorship and being shadow banned and being able to access the internet equally as a content creator?
3: Only at a very low level. It would prevent your internet connection from saying, you don't pay enough to go to this website, or we AT&T don't like this website, so you can't go to it. It would not address the question of people being banned from YouTube, for example, or from Patreon, or from being able to receive donations on PayPal, which we see all the time. Reporters, journalists, independent media frequently are dealing with this. Wyatt Reed, who's a great reporter and investigator, banned from Venmo. And they won't tell him why. So unfortunately, net neutrality would not address those kinds of situations. And that's a a separate fight that is happening. Part of that is around Section 230, which is something that has been a hot topic. Donald Trump very loudly campaigned to repeal 230. Joe Biden was a little quieter in his comments about 230, but also said, we need to take another look at it. I'm not a big fan of 230. There hasn't been much real movement either way on action against 230, but the threat remains. That still wouldn't prevent things like PayPal from shutting down somebody's account. They say, well, we're a private service, we can do whatever we want. But we see the application of these bans We've seen it certainly throughout 2022 in terms of who was removed from various services after the Russian military action in Ukraine started very, very quickly. Whether or not you agreed with it or not, that was irrelevant. Whether you said, I support this or I kind of support this or I don't support it. So many accounts were shadow banned. They were outright banned, suspended, removed. People's content was just removed from YouTube with no backup and no way to to get it back. I mean, many, many years of archives of some great shows were just gone. So net neutrality would not address that. But it's a really good point, because that's part of the fight for freedom on the internet.
2: So in terms of net neutrality, what do you feel like the movement will be on net neutrality in the coming weeks or the coming months with everything else that's going on? And how do you feel that people can best get involved?
3: One thing I would certainly do is call up your senators, tell them to support the Net Neutrality and Broadband Justice Act. It's extremely short. It is two pages long. It's like a page and a half long, actually encourage them to sign on to it, to push for it to go through the various processes that it has to go through in the Senate to be uh, reconciled with a similar bill in the House. That's something that we need to push right now, as well as in January, when the next Congress comes in. I don't think anything's going to happen this year. We're just past the elections. Nothing's going to happen, unfortunately, this year. But I don't want us to wait until this is an urgent issue. When Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, whoever starts implementing rules that violate the principles of net neutrality, we can't wait for that. We should also be pushing for a hearing for Gigi Sohn. Let's get that hearing happening. Let's hear what she has to say. Let's get her up there again. We heard her the first time around, but you know, let's get her up there again and get some actual media attention on it because we need to see where is she going to stand. Give a fair hearing, which is basic democracy. Like I said, I think she would be great from what I've seen so far, but There's still questions that remain. And the purpose of these committees is supposed to have these hearings, ask questions, and then take action. And they haven't done the last part. And that's really the critical thing. But we need to codify, especially as we get into 2024, we need to codify net neutrality into law. And that's what the Net Neutrality and Broadband Justice Act would do. So I think building movements for that, pushing representatives, pushing senators to do so, Working towards as well, working towards municipal broadband in your locality, especially if you live in a moderate sized city, that seems to be one of the best places to start. It's not an easy fight, but typically the fights that mean the most are the ones that are more difficult.
2: And I can't help but wonder, I mean, I I haven't done this research, but I can't help but wonder how many people standing in the way of Gigi Stone's confirmation if you went to Open Secrets, for instance, and looked at their donors, how many have Comcast and how many have at t and all that, like, I can't help but wonder how much that is standing in the way of this when she has already been outspoken about her feelings about net neutrality and I'm also curious, just in terms of the municipal broadband neutrality, do you look at these as parallel fights? Let's say that I lived in in some medium-sized town that you mentioned that had municipal broadband, would net neutrality matter to me? It would still
3: matter because your municipal broadband still has to connect to the backbone of the internet. And there are companies like AT&T, Level 3, and a number of others that actually have that, that service that. They have the cables, they have the underground, they have the underwater cables, and they maintain that infrastructure. And they have agreements with each other. They're called peering agreements. And they say that, you know, we are going to just send our traffic over each other's networks. We're not going to charge for it because it's going to be about an equal share, you know, back and forth. And so you still have those kind of connections to worry about. But it's a huge step in terms of your local ISPs because you can connect to the larger backbone of the Internet rather than trying to go through a Comcast first or a Fios first. In terms of donations, it's actually very interesting. If you look at organizational donations in 2022, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, they give just about equally to Republicans and Democrats, particularly when you're looking at senatorial and congressional committees on both sides. AT&T actually gives more to the national Republican committees than they do to the Democrats, but they still give tens of thousands of dollars to both sides. And that's a very purposeful, that's not a political question because they agree on abortion or health care or whatever it is. They're playing both sides. They're hedging their bets, and they're saying, you know what, no matter which side wins, we want to be able to say, hey, we gave you all this money. Like, we gave $30,000 to the DCCC, so that helped your campaign, that helped your party get power, so help us out now. They spend so much money on lobbying, it's ridiculous. I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars for each of these companies, and it only grows. It's not even a partisan issue in terms of the donations they're making. We have to remember that, by and large, both parties are corporate parties. They support these corporate parties. Net neutrality is one of those issues where Democrats are slightly better. They're a little better on it. Not great, because if they were great, then when we had eight years of Obama, we would have just had net neutrality. It would have been codified. But, you know, we can say the same thing about Roe. They talk a good talk, but are they actually going to take action? Are the Democrats on the Senate Commerce Committee taking any kind of action to get a hearing, a second hearing for Gigi Sohn? No, they're not. Maybe they're playing backroom politics, but they're not making public statements about it until after something, you know, awful happens, as we saw with Roe. I'm not saying that the Democrats are way better, but, you know, I think we've seen that they can be pushed a little more, but they can also be pushed by money on the other side. So that's why it's so critical to have these movements rather than just relying on who you're voting for.
2: And I'm so glad that you brought up Roe v. Wade because I was thinking about that when you mentioned that it would codify this into law. And I'm like, oh, where have I heard that? And of course, in the recent midterm elections, it was brought up like a zombie that wouldn't go away. If you vote for us, we will codify. And I'm like, where were you the past 40 years? And I can't help but feel that this will be one of those, another one of those issues. Like, well, why codify this into law when we can kind of use this as a carrot and stick right. each time the midterms come around to remind people why they need us? So I'm curious, are there loopholes large enough that people like Comcast and the at and could get through them as it stands with the current Title II, the way that the FCC would put it? as opposed to this legislation, are there loopholes that these big telecoms could access even if net neutrality were put into place by the FCC?
3: Not that I'm aware of. I'm not a lawyer, but in the analysis I've read and in the bill, the important part of the bill is actually 11 lines long. It modifies existing law to include the offering of broadband internet service for a fee directly to the public, et cetera. And there's some legal legal language in there. I don't see a way, but, you know, AT&T has thousands of paid, highly paid lawyers. They all do. I am not a lawyer, and I'm certainly not highly paid for my non-legal takes. So I don't think so. You know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others have done some really good analysis of this bill, and I would defer to their great analysis on it, which also supports the bill and says we should get this. But the important thing about it is that having it be under Title II would mean that the FCC can't make any further decisions on it. It is codified into law. It is not something the FCC can go back and forth on depending on who is in that fifth seat.
2: So, in terms of the FCC what's been going on since Tom Wheeler and Obama decided net neutrality and then Trump overturned it Have we seen any movement in terms of the big telecoms rushing in to to do all the things that they can do now that net neutrality is no longer with us for the time being?
3: So it's very interesting that the telecoms have not actually been targeting the consumers just yet. They haven't been targeting us with price hikes related to net neutrality. There have been price hikes for sure. And I'm sure most people can just see that in their monthly budget. But what they're doing is actually going after the content providers like Netflix and saying, you're taking up a lot of traffic on our network and you should pay us extra for that. But if Netflix has to pay extra money, they still have to maintain their profit. And so that gets passed on back to us anyway. Consumer Reports or one of these sites does their most hated company of the year and regularly Comcast wins that contest. I I don't remember if it's Consumer Reports or another one, but it's it's like every year they do it. So they don't want to be like, oh, we're going to charge you more to get on Netflix. They want to pass it along and say, we're going to charge Netflix more because they're using more of our resources, which there is very little like, technical reason to do that. Comcast is going to have to build infrastructure, AT&T, they're all going to have to build infrastructure, no matter what. During the lockdowns, many people had to work from home. I don't want to forget those folks who who still had to go to work, but there was video conferencing, there was Zoom with your friends, with your family, with work, with, and they seemed to manage just fine. While people were still like watching Netflix while they were working at home all day. So that excuse to me absolutely makes no sense. But that's what they've been trying to do, not just in the US, but also in South Korea, in the UK as well. It's been a a movement in a number of countries where the ISPs, internet service providers are trying to say, well, these services are using a lot of our resources, so they should pay us more.
2: Interesting, because I you'd then think that you'd hear more about net neutrality from Netflix. I don't imagine that you've been in touch with Netflix about this, but can you think as to why they wouldn't want to then push the issue of net neutrality?
3: Because they rely on so many of these companies for some of their content. Netflix has been moving towards doing their own content. They do some great stuff, but a lot of the shows that are out there on Netflix still from other services, right? Think about, you know, Friends, whatever else you're going to watch, the throwback stuff, that's all from other media platforms, many of whom own either an ISP or have certain ties to giant telecommunications companies. So they don't want to annoy those companies too much, but they also don't want to pay them extra just to have their service running.
2: And with, the, I I can't remember exactly what it was called. It was before the net neutrality fight though, but like Wikipedia and a bunch of web pages went dark. I, it was mm-hmm. years ago. It was like 2010 or 2012. I can't remember exactly when. And I'm curious, do you see something like that being viable again? Or now that Facebook is basically just the Atlantic Council and Twitter is now owned by Elon Musk. Do you see the internet being able to coalesce into some kind of fight like this again? Or- Does it really just have to be the grassroots?
3: That was Wikipedia, Reddit, a number of others. Many of the big sites of the day were engaged in that. Reddit, unfortunately, now owned by Condé Nast. So I highly doubt that they would get involved in a political statement like that. Many other platforms I mean, Wikipedia certainly could do it again. Craigslist could do it. Still a big platform. Facebook obviously wouldn't. Netflix wouldn't for the reasons we just talked about. Twitter wouldn't. You know, that's just the reality that we are in today. That also gets to the centralization of internet services, where we're all on the same like five websites every day, rather than what it used to be back a decade, two decades ago, where there were plenty of sites. But all of that has been kind of concentrated into the social media sites, the you know streaming media sites, and a handful of news sites. We need to democratize the internet. We can't just try to start over, especially without learning any of the lessons that we are seeing today, the commercialization of the internet, the enhanced tracking and surveillance that exists from corporations and government alike. If we just started a new internet and said, it's only for this purpose, academic, entertainment, whatever, we would learn nothing from the mistakes that have already been made because the internet originally was defense department, it was research universities, and it was private. It was just for that. Then they opened it up to corporations. And we see 20, 30 years later where we've ended up. But I think the movement is really to democratize access to the internet, but also the content on the internet, net neutrality, municipal broadband, they're all related. But that's the fight that we need to have. And really, the only way to do that is to have neutral international control over the internet. This is not just a U.S. issue. In fact, we would be chauvinistic to say just the U.S. should have these discussions and these debates. The entire world uses the internet, so the entire world should have a say into how the internet is run with everyone having an equal voice at the table.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I I know several people who have websites that are hosted in other countries because they're afraid that the U.S. will just shut down their websites. (laughs) Perhaps there is no other space where borders are as ridiculous and superfluous as the internet. Chris, where can people go to hear more of your work?
3: Every Wednesday, the Covert Action Bulletin podcast comes out. You can find it on all of your favorite podcast websites. Search for Covert Action Bulletin. Covert Action is one word. You can hear us in New York City on Wednesday mornings at 99.5 WBAI, also at 9 a.m. Wednesdays. And of course, at CovertActionMagazine.com. Thank
2: you so much, Chris. Hey, thank you. And that does it for another episode of the project censored show on pacifica radio i'm eleanor goldfield co-hosting with mickey huff for this episode i've also been your associate producer and anthony fest is our senior producer project censored radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the u.s from maui to new york and you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org to learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>
0: Political ties, habitualized, alibis, disguise, and other guys in democracy, politics, and the apocalypse, got the skies looking like ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison, genocide, wars fall for little poison.